0: thanks very much scott well, after this really uh, very strong morning morning session i uh, hope that we'll be able to i'll be able to continue a bit uh, uh, now and uh, i'm very happy to be here <clears throat> allow me to begin with a recollection which takes me back to the years around 1980 years to which uh, uh, martin in his initial talk, referred to via the postcard of Derrida. Years when Friedrich Kittler and I saw each other regularly and during which time we collaborated on a number of projects. Friedrich was then still an assistant professor at the University of Freiburg, preparing his Habilitation, which a few years later would be published, namely in 1985, under the German title Aufschreibesysteme and which in 1990 would then appear in English under the significantly different title, I believe, of discourse networks. We talked a little bit earlier this morning about uh, Kittler's relation to writing. Aufschreib is literally uh, writing down or writing writing, uh, out uh, and uh, that disappears in the English title. In the early 1980s, I was spending part of each year in Strasbourg and so Friedrich and I were able to visit each other fairly often and discuss common concerns, of which there were many. Both of us had been invigorated by the emergence of French post-structuralism, in particular by Lacan, Derrida, and Foucault, <clears throat> whose writings at the time seemed to pose a serious challenge to traditional ways of thinking, as well as to the institutions that perpetuated them. A few years earlier, in 1977, Friedrich had co edited with Horst Türk a collection of essays that was to be quite influential at the time. Interesting that this has disappeared from the Wikipedia, German Wikipedia bibliography of Friedrich Hitler, although it's quite extensive, Uh, entitled uh, Urzähnen, Primal Scenes in which he published a text entitled The Phantom of the Eye and the Psychology of Literature, dealing with Etia Huffman's story, The Sandman, in the light of Freud's reading of it in his essay on the uncanny and of Lacan's subsequent discussion of both. But as the Huffman story and as psychoanalytic theory of the uncanny in general might have led us to suspect, the phantom of the eye was not to be as easily exercised as many of us at the time might have thought. Friedrich's next major publication, another essay collection, but this time edited on his own, stated that, uh, in its title already, in bare terms, the program that he was to follow in the coming years. Its title, roughly translated, was and is The Exercising of the Spirit from the Humanities with, uh, in German, Austreibung des Geistes, aus den den Geisteswissenschaften. Um, One of the untranslatable words is, of course, often noted, the word Geist, in English, spirit, mind, intellect. None of these, however, even begins to render the multiple connotations of the German word, also its theological background. Languages which are singular systems are often, in fact always, incommensurable in their most neuralgic moments and places. There is no adequate English English correspondence for Geist, and even less for the disciplines that study them, namely Geisteswissenschaften. Humanities, which is how I rendered the title, is surely related to Geist, but by no means identical with it. The German rendition of humanities, or science science humaine, is humanwissenschaften. It sounds as artificial as sciences of the spirit would in English. All of this is not merely a trivial linguistic accident, nor is it inconsiderable in its implications and consequences. I am dwelling on this issue, among others for the following reason: I'm convinced that writers in general, and in this very singular and exceptional case, the writings of Friedrich Kittler, gain enormously when they are read as responses to determinate situations, to distinct and not necessarily universal traditions and conventions, which can therefore vary enormously from one linguistic area to another. Academic discourse traditionally at least in the three languages with which I'm familiar, but presumably in others as well, lives and thrives on the axiom of its universality. Given, however, the vastly different, not to say incommensurable, intellectual and institutional histories, for instance, of the German and English-speaking countries, areas that already are highly diverse within themselves, the assumption of such universality which is the precondition of the expectation of perfect translatability, results frequently in extreme parochialism, insofar as the universality that is presupposed turns out to be nothing but the projection of a very particular set of experiences, expectations and structures upon very different situations. Let me add that this situation is something of which Kittler was acutely aware, even if he did not always address it explicitly. Here, however, is one striking and exemplary exception. And you have a handout, so uh, longer quotes, I'll point you to that. This is quote one on it. Friedrich writes, uh, this is a slight variation of what we've been hearing, a medium is a medium is a medium. Therefore, it cannot be translated. You may have heard a quote earlier this morning saying precisely that media can be translated and although these two statements appear and do in fact uh, explicitly contradict each other I think the challenge is to think them together and uh, uh, beyond their 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 logical contradiction Uh, translation being both possible and impossible Uh, so a medium is a medium is a medium therefore it cannot be translated to transfer messages from one medium to another always involves reshaping them to conform to new standards and materials. In a discourse network, uh, this requires an awareness of the abysses that divide the one order of experience, sense experience, from the other. In this situation, transportation necessarily takes the place of translation. Whereas translation excludes all particularities in favor of a general equivalent, the transposition of media is accomplished serially at discrete points." End quote, end of quote. Let me highlight one of, these, uh, one of those discrete points of what in translation Kitler refers to as transportation or transposition, but which in German involves a word that is much larger in its connotations, namely the word übertragung, the literal German equivalent of the Greek metaphor. The word in both Greek and in German strongly connotes not just a change of place, as it does in English, but rather a change in what is changing place. In this sense, a better translation in English would be perhaps transfer or even rendition, rather than transportation, or another possibility, transport. To be sure, Kittler is characteristically referring to the transition from, quote, one order of sense experience to another one, but the word he uses suggests suggests that the abyss, mentioned, divide not merely one order of sense experience from the other, but, moreover and primordially, each individual sense experience from itself, which is to say, from its conventionally determined form. In other words, I think Kipler would argue, and I certainly would argue, that there is no such thing as a pure sense experience. As a result, it can be argued that translation, impossible in the sense of identical reproduction, actually goes on all the time, not just between different languages and media, but within them, but that it also tends to obscure and conceal the transformative nature of its own process. In doing this, it avails itself of a number of traditional devices, not the least of which being the belief, takes up something we mentioned earlier this morning, the belief that so-called proper names, for instance, that of Friedrich Kittler, necessarily guarantee the self-identity and constancy that the process of transfer, translation, and transport constantly belie. Another related device closely linked to the notion of the proper name, especially where persons, subjects, or authors are concerned, is precisely what Kittler called the phantom of the eye in the title to that first essay collection, Urzäinen. The belief in a unified medium or in the unity of a particular sense experience is thus closely tied to the belief in the unity of that eye or ego that the Urzäinen, whether Freud's or Kittler's, sought to call into question, or Lacan's for that matter. This belief or expectation of a unity of sense experience or of the unity of the medium associated with it is related to yet another phantom against which Kittler argued from the start, that of self-identical, universal, and unchanging meanings as the object or product of what Kittler addressed as Geist. Geist, as the title of his second essay collection proclaimed, was to be exorcised, or, more literally, to be driven out, to be expelled from the institution that perpetuated it, namely from the Geisteswissenschaften, which, once they had been purged of this geist, could then return in a substantially altered, more materialistic form, namely as Medienwissenschaften or Kulturwissenschaften. At the time, and indeed ever since, I have to admit that I was troubled by the second word that is difficult to translate, but that is decisive for, I believe, a major part of Hitler's writing, the word Austreibung. The word is not innocent, and its English renditions, exercising, exclusion, expulsion, again, hardly do justice to its historical resonances. In German, I believe it is difficult to entirely separate this word from one of the many trauma that haunted German society in the post-war period, namely that of German populations, and I believe it was 14 million, that were expelled, the German word used and is is vertrieben, rather than ausgetrieben, uh, from areas in which they in part had lived for centuries, in Central and Eastern Europe, as that map was, with, was redrawn following the, in the aftermath of the Second World War. In short, There was a theological, even spiritistic, violence in the notion of Austreibung, as exorcism, that concerned me then as now, but that I also felt corresponded and responded to the violence of recent German and European history. Not that I believed that the allusion to violence in academic or intellectual matters was something to be avoided on principle, Such avoidance, it was and remains clear to me, often serves as a cover to label as violence only that which is less firmly institutionalized, that of individuals, for instance, and to legitimate by implication forms of institutionalized, more conventionally sanctioned violence. One of these, and here I was certainly of the same opinion as Friedrich Kittler, one of these was surely associated with the notion and word spirit, for reasons that among others subsequently Jacques Derrida was to deploy in his little book entitled Of Spirit, and whose subtitle reads Heidegger and the Question, the question being of course a word that also signifies torture. Rather, what worried me at the time, and what continues to concern me, is the suspicion that exorcism itself could constitute an effective form of avoidance. For although I had no illusions about the dangers involved in a culture that placed a universalizing concept of Geist at the summit of its values, I was even more concerned about the project of driving this Geist out, For it seemed clear to me that this title announced not an accomplished fact yet, but an ongoing project and a program. It did this by forming the substantive out of the infinitive, using the form aus treiben rather than aus treibung, which would have suggested an accomplished act. Uh, This underscored for me the unfinished, ongoing nature of the process thus announced, and defined itself, therefore, as a call to action, as an appeal. This was, I believe, to emerge as a constant characteristic of Friedrich Kittler's prose. Behind its many declarations, often decried as apodictic, stood an appeal to action, here the action of driving out a spirit that had long outlived its usefulness, or at least of driving it out of its institutionalized cover in the academy. However, it was not this call to action, as I've said, that concerned me, then as now, but rather its efficacy, for I was reminded of a remark made by Adorno in an essay on Kafka in a book that I had translated some years before, namely a book entitled Prisms, and this is a short quote, too, on your handout. This is Adorno on Kafka. No sooner has the surveyor expelled the annoying apprentices from his room in the country inn, then they return through the window, without the novel bothering to dwell on this, apart from simply reporting the fact. The hero is too tired in order to expel them again." Now, by contrast with Kafka's tired anti-hero, Friedrich Kittler, I believe, never grew too tired to renew his effort to exercise, auszutreiben, what he felt had outlived its usefulness. And that began but did not end with the dominant academic conventions that prevailed in the institutions in which he too had to function, namely those of the German University. It is here that I feel it indispensable that readers of his work recall or are informed of the particular academic situation in history against which Hitler was reacting. If he began by seeking to limit, if not deprive, the Geisteswissenschaften of their indispensable objects, geist and with it meaning, universal meaning, it was also because he had to endure the power of the academy to limit critical thinking, which called its basic principles into question. The desire to make a clean break with the past, a past felt to be largely an impediment to the future, drew him to Lacan and Derrida, but more perhaps to Foucault, who at the time had helped popularize the notion of an, a, a coupure epistemologique, borrowed from Gaston Bachelard to emphasize the fundamental discontinuity between historically distinct discourses and systems. This, in turn, would encourage the kind of periodization that informed Kittler's first two major books, Discourse Networks, Aufschreibe Systeme, published in 1985, which bore the subheading 1800-1900, and its follow-up publication, Gramophone Film and Typewriter, published in 1986 in German. The the latter title, designating a pure sequence without any sense of completion, there's no and in the title, thereby suggests the technical devices that would begin to supplant the notion of a spirit guiding the development of history according to a more or less transparent teleological pattern. As a result, the academic Geisteswissenschaften would, as I've said, be reorganized as sciences of technical media. But in turn, such media techniques would be defined, in part at least, through the manner in which they would exclude and transform a long tradition dominated by discursive semantics claiming to draw their authority from the universality of meaning. From Kittler's many pronouncements on the subject of media, the following has the virtue of being both short and sweet from an essay originally published in 1988 in German, entitled The City as Medium. Media exists, he writes, to process, record, and transmit numbers. And a little further on in the same essay, and this is quote three in your handout, media record, transmit, and process information. This is the most elementary definition of media. Media can include old-fashioned things like books, Familiar things like the city, and newer inventions like the computer. It was von Neumann's computer architecture that technically implemented this definition for the first time in history, or as its end. End of history again. This network of processing, transmission, and recording, or restated, of commands, addresses, and data, can calculate everything based on Turing's famous proof from 1936, can calculate everything that is calculable. And this is reason enough, moreover, to decipher past media and the historical function of what we refer to as man as the play between commands, addresses, and data." Thus, on the one hand, the break between new and older media was presented as a clear and distinct discontinuity. On the other hand, it was to provide a basis for seeing the development of history as a continuum whose structure only the newer media allow us to comprehend fully, or, as Kittler puts it in the passage just quoted, whose structure permits us to decipher. This is reason enough to decipher past media as the play between commands, addresses, and data. It is in thus deploying as a key to historical understanding this notion of deciphering that a point is attained where precisely those annoying apprentices to which Adorno refers in his Kafka quote can return massively through the rear window, or rather, to use Kitler's vocabulary, can return transported by the bus of the circuit board through the gates or ports of Boolean algebra and of the circuit board. Gates and ports, which as Kittler notes, can be considered to constitute simplest elements of the computer insofar as they have no memory and are therefore dependent on the built-in memory of the bus in order to be operational. Now, in what consists this return? I want to suggest that it consists in the unquestioned epistemological authority of the writing subject that signs his text Friedrich Kittler, or sometimes more simply as FAC, which in part at least seems to me based on the distinction of functions that are only functional insofar as they, as they are interdependent, namely that of storage, processing, and transmission of something called data. I'm reminded a bit here of Saussure's famous attempt to justify the priority and independence of the synchronic over the diachronic state by referring to the game of chess. What Saussure forgot, and his own notes to his lecture show us that he was fully aware of this, was that the so-called synchronic state is structurally divided by the move, by the fact that one of the two players involved in the game of chess has the move and the other does not. In short, a certain diachrony intrudes and structures the apparently self-contained chessboard precisely insofar as it is a game. What I want to suggest is that perhaps a certain diachronic overlapping of functions breaks down the clear-cut distinctions into processing, storage, and transmission since each is implied and involved in the others, which limits their distinct self-identity. Thus, in a lecture on universities wet, hard, soft, and harder, Kittler seeks to interpret the functions of the medieval institution according to his triadic mold, as namely the data-processing lecture, the data-storing university library, and the data-transmitting mail. But a lecture or seminar can be considered as much data-transmitting as data-storing and mail and the library also can be considered to process the data by the ways in which they store and transmit it. Similarly, the notion of address is not simply an aspect of storage, but can also designate a form of transmission, or at least of movement. It applies both to the library and to mail, for instance. It can also be a factor orienting or directing the flow of such information, as much as designating its more or less fixed location and retrievability. I want to suggest by all this that despite the unquestionable global dimensions of the technicity with which Hitler was concerned, that his addressing of it was very much, remained very much a response to certain specific traditions of German humanistic scholarship, and uh, that his thought is therefore not entirely separable from the notions embodied in such words as Geist and Geisteswissenschaft. Kittler was initially trained as a literary scholar and the field of literary studies was and to a certain extent still is dominated in Germany by what is called the hermeneutic tradition which portrays literary texts as the articulation of meaning generally fulfilling the intentions of the writing subject qua author. This ultimately theological tradition going back to the Biblical account of the creation of the world through a single deity, what Kittler, by the way, calls at one point the the single god uh, uh, delirium, became sedimented in the rules of Biblical textual Auslegung, that is, explication or unfolding of meanings, held to have been contained in or symbolized by the sacred text. As the direct authority of the church was weakened, first through the Reformation, and then through what is called the Enlightenment, the explication of texts and of artistic works more generally tended to take up the slack, as it were, becoming exemplary instances through which an initial authorial and creative meaning was to be recuperated and reappropriated by world-bound finite and mortal spirits. The cult of authority imposing itself through intentional meaning and action, thus found one of its strongest defenses in this hermeneutic tradition, whether in its Hegelian form of an absolute spirit qua knowledge, or in its more cautious diltai form, distinguishing between scientific causal explanation and humanistic interpretation. This then, I believe, constituted one of the first and primary negative addresses of Friedrich Kittler's writing, understandably, since it dominated the institutional context in which he had to work, and which would provide the condition of much of his further research. Recent revelations about the opposition to his Habilitation, that's the process by which in Germany you become, uh, through a second dissertation, uh, qualified to direct dissertations, and to have an academic, uh, long-standing permanent academic positions. Recent revelations about the opposition to his habilitation on the part of certain senior faculty members only underscores the reality of such power relation in and against which he had to work and of course not he alone. Kittler's fascination with war as the medium both of historical and of technological and medial development, can be seen, therefore, as in part, at least, a response both to the more immediate realities of recent German history, which in his case, as in so many others, have directly affected his family and his childhood, and to the hostile power relations that pervaded in the the academic context of his writing, and which threatened during his Habilitations process to put an early end to his academic career as it had done a half century earlier to that of Walter Benjamin. Thus, although Kittler from the start was intent on driving the Geist out of the Geisteswissenschaften and thereby opening the way for their transformation into Median Technik, and Kulturwissenschaften, his reliance on a paradigm borrowed from contemporary media as the storage, processing and transmission of information threatened at times to introduce a new dogma into the soon-to-be-established sciences of media, and one which, somewhat but not entirely paradoxically, would wind up reinstating or confirming the epistemic authority of the scholar as founder of a cult or of a school. For the process of Austreibung implies or entails an exerciser with priestly qualities, but also as what Lacan once called the sujet supposé savoir, the subject supposed to know. The spirit as absolute knowledge thus returned to haunt the extraordinarily erudite and remarkable scholar and stylist that was Friedrich Kittler, establishing yet another, if highly innovative, school after the many schools and circles that have marked German cultural, intellectual, and artistic life since at least 1800. Another continuity that the advent of the digital age apparently has not disturbed. The existence of such schools, and above all of the demand to which they respond, appears to to transcend the undeniable and considerable alterations brought about by the rise of new electronic media. A fact that I'm not certain that the triad of data storage, processing and transmission alone can adequately address, which does not mean that this triad cannot be helpful in developing an interpretation of the persistence of such phenomena. This reactionary dimension, marking the return of an authority that in many ways was no less absolute than those of the Geisteswissenschaftler it was supposed to supplant, was neither peculiar to Friedrich Kittler nor by any means the only aspect of his prodigious writing. But it does pose a problem, I believe, that demands attention in evaluating the scope and ramifications of his work, work that no doubt has profoundly and durably altered our understanding of what many years ago E. P. Snow called the two cultures and what today is designated as the digital divide. It has to be added, however, that alongside of a certain totalizing tendency in his presentation of the historical significance of technical media, his writing often expresses a sense of necessary limitation to what can be thought and said of their impact. Of this, an interesting instance can be found in the essay already quoted the city as medium. I've quoted these lines, but they doubtless passed by without receiving much attention, so let me repeat them. They refer to von Neumann's computer architecture, which leads to the microprocessor, quote, this network of processing, transmission, and recording or restated of commands, addresses, and data can calculate everything that is calculable," end quote. The question that remains unasked, although implied, I believe, is, are there limits to the calculable? And if so, then can we think or experience what is incalculable? And how would this relate then to what can be calculated? There is in the literature that Kittler surveyed in his first book, a highly significant attempt to introduce a certain calculus into the writing and theorization of poetry, and in particular of tragedy. I'm thinking here of the famous opening comments of Herdelin's remarks on Oedipus. As far as I know, herdelin is a poet that Hitler, uh, that Hitler often uh, mentioned, but didn't, uh, but didn't really uh, discuss at great length. I may be missing something there. Given the relevance of what we've been discussing, and given the density of the passage, I take the liberty of quoting it at length, this is quote four on your sheet. It will be good in order to assure poets including ours a decent existence, kind of burglish existence, if poetry including ours, subtracting the difference of times and constitutions, can be elevated to the mechane of the ancients. Also other works of art, compared with those of the Greeks, are lacking in reliability At least they have until now been judged far more for the impressions they make than for their lawful calculus and other procedural modes through which the beautiful is brought forth. Modern poetry, however, is particularly lacking in schooling and handwork or craft am so that their procedural mode modes might be calculated and taught, and once learned, reliably repeated in their exercise. One has among humans, with each thing, above all, to attend to the fact that it is something. Das ist etwas ist, i.e. that in the means, moyen, that of its manifestation, it is recognizable, er kenba, that the way in which it is conditioned, bedingt, can be determined and taught. Therefore, and out of higher grounds, poetry requires particularly certain and characteristic principles and limits. That is where the lawful calculus belongs. Then, one must be attentive to how the content distinguishes itself, through which procedures and in the infinite but thoroughly determined context, particular contents relate to the universal calculus and, the going, and to the goings-on, and that which is to be set in place, the living sense, the lebendige sinn that cannot be calculated, how that is brought into relation to the calculable law, end of quote. Hölderlin, schoolmate and friend of Hegel and Schelling, formed and educated through an intensive confrontation with German idealistic philosophy of Kant and Fichte. Hölderlin here does what, according to Kittler, all metaphysics from Plato through Hegel and beyond refused to do, or most at least, namely, introduce techniques and calculus into the determination of poetry as something other than the act of a subject. In so doing, Höldling is also well on his way to overcoming the polarity of form and matter that Kittler following Heidegger sees as one of the hallmarks of traditional metaphysics and its aesthetics. This gesture of Hurdling seems to me profoundly related to Kittler's demand to include knowledge of the technical state of the art in any effective ontology of media. Such knowledge would concern the technical state of the art which Kittler associates with blueprints, layouts, mainboard designs, industrial roadmaps, and so on, namely the hardware of high-tech, and in particular with its numerical dimension, namely a mathematical medium that, as the early modern invention of real numbers and general exponents, brought forth an acoustic medium, a line of thought he goes into in his work on mathematics and music. When Herdelin, in the passage cited, makes the production and understanding of tragedy dependent on the knowledge of certain general laws and their application, which he also names or designates as a calculus, he construes tragedy as inseparable from rules that can be taught and transmitted, which in turn make the writing of tragedies, in part at least, into something like a craft or a handwork, and not just the result of general inspiration or creation. Compare this to the following general assessment to be found in Kittler's essay, Number and Numeral, Zahl and Sifar. This is Quote 5 on your sheet. The principal difficulty, he writes, resides in not submitting our world made up of mathematical calculus, epistemic things, and technological media to a supreme being, be it God, meaning, or man, something the early modern age was incapable of doing. From Leibniz to Konecker, the simplest of numbers, binary or natural, was said to be a gift from God or of God. And from Descartes and Hegel to Diltai, the meaning imposed by subjects on objectivities or media was a covert resistance Against thinking about technology. Evidently, numbers had to leave humans behind and become part of machines that run on their own in order for technology to appear as a frame that conjoins being and thought. This turn was completed by Alan Turing. The turn completed by Turing was not one that Hölderlin sought to take, not at least in his remarks on Oedipus and Antigone, written after having translated both plays. Indeed, Herdelin warned against trying to take such a turn completely, to complete it, which sought entirely, turns which sought entirely to overturn existing system of values, however much he sought to have them altered and transformed, and this, was because his world was not quite the same as that described by Hitler in the passage just read and attributed to all of us. Namely, the principal difficulty, I repeat, resides in not submitting our world made up of mathematical calculus, epistemic things, and technological media to a supreme being. However much Huddling argued for a revalorization of technique, general principles, and lawful calculus in their application, he was also aware that his world did not consist exclusively or entirely of mathematical calculus, epistemic things, and technical media, for the simple reason that not all things could be considered strictly from the perspective of the epistemic. And this is also where his notion of the medium, for which he here invokes the French word moyen, certainly diverges from the one generally invoked by Friedrich Kittler, namely in reserving an irreducible place to, to singularity. For if Hertling demanded that in the practice of poetry each thing be seen as something, which is to say, recognized with reference to the general conditions of its emergence, he also insisted on the irreducible gap separating those general principles and all calculability from what he called the living sense, not to be confused with any notion of a universally valid meaning, which Hitler justifiably identifies as presenting the major obstacle to a rethinking of technology and media that would no longer be dependent on the paradigm of a supreme being, be it God, creator, or autonomous subject. No, the living sense of which Höllerlin writes is that which precisely is set off by and against the general calculation as that which resists resolution in an equation even while it presupposes equations and algorithms in order at the same time to comply with them and to resist them. The singularity of this living sense thus involves a movement that is neither linear nor circular, neither strictly sequential nor strictly parallel. Kittler concludes his essay towards an ontology of media by recounting, quote, the dream most dear to solid state physicians, namely one, as he puts it, of computers based on parallel and tiny quantum states, instead of on big and serial silicon connections. And he notes that if this, quote, rosy dawn should ever really arise, I quote now, I, or rather my successors, shall withdraw this paper." It's a frequent gesture in his, in his writing. Without claiming to fully understand all the implications of this dream, or the likelihood of it dawning sometime soon. Quantum computers, of course, are very much under discussion and development. Uh, I would like to believe that the shift, not necessarily the turn, from sequential to parallel quantum thinking, although not necessarily computing, is already at work in the poetry, translation, and remarks of Höldlin. At the close of his remarks on Antigone, Hölderlin seeks to confirm his theory that tragic presentation is designed to preserve what he calls a certain equilibrium. In German, the word he uses is Gleichgewicht, a word which in Antigone seems to mean a certain balance between Antigone and Creon, for instance. But it is a balance that is preserved only through imbalance very interesting, I don't have the time here to compare this to Hegel's notion, but it's quite different. Uh, This sums, this is summed up in Hödlin's use of the German word Gleich at the end of his remarks. The word Gleich is rather like, our English word like, stressing similarity but retaining difference. In other words, what is like is never simply equal or identical. The implications of this equivocal like, gleich, are unfolded when Herdelin towards the end of his remark, comes to articulate the specifically political import of the tragedy. Before citing this passage, however, it's necessary to point out that Herdelin also employs a tripartite structure, something somewhat like what Kitler in Towards an Ontology of Media and elsewhere designates as a new trinity, Kittler, those are Kitler's words, destined to replace the old polarity of form and matter, namely the triad as we've seen made up of commands, addresses and data, whereby the question remains of whether Kitler's new trinity, however ironically the term is meant, does not carry some of the implications of the old trinity, by likening the notion of medium, for instance, to that of the supreme being, he also wishes it to replace. Hölderlin, for his part, seeking to analyze tragic presentation, acknowledges that some sort of relationship of bodies to the godlike is constitutive, but this relation is hardly one of submission, as Kitler puts it and attributes it to traditional uh, metaphysics. Rather. It entails striving, conflict, and tension. It is this tension that then dominates in the triadic structure of Hölderlin that I want to juxtapose and contrast with Kittler's new trinity. Here, then, is the relevant passage from the end of Hölderlin's remarks, quoted in medias res, as it were. This is the sixth and last quote on your handout. Preeminently, however, tragic presentation consists in the factical word that, more context than actually enunciated, destined, goes from beginning to end in the mode of provenance, hergang, in the grouping of persons against each other, and in the form of reason that constitutes itself in the terrible muse of a tragic time, end quote. Now, Hödelin's new trinity here clearly takes its distance from both the traditional polarity of form and matter, or content, and from the no less traditional trinity, since it begins not with an origin, or with a creator, but with what in German is called a Hergang, which is to say with the question of provenance, the where from, and hence with a trajectory that has been followed in arriving here. In other words, not with an absolute beginning. If this can be compared to the process of storing data in the case of the tragic medium, and more specifically of Antigone, such storage is shown to be highly unstable and inconstant, since it consists in what Hurtling then goes on to designate as an upheaval, in German Aufruhr, literally a kind of uproar which in turn is the result of what he calls an infinite overturning, unendliche Umkehr. Unlike the turn that Turing is said to have completed, for for Hölderling, such uh, an infinite overturning can never be consummated, not at least for man as a cognizant being. He writes, a complete overturning in this is, however, like complete overturning generally without anything to hold on to, ohne allen Halt, is not permitted for humans as cognizant beings. In such situations where the entire figure of things changes and where nature and necessity, which always remain, incline toward another figure, whether to savagery or a new figure, what is possible for man is the feeling of being profoundly shattered, what Herdlin in German calls Er Erschütterung. And this, in turn, impels such shattered persons to traumatize, perhaps, to redefine themselves, or, as Herdoling puts it, to formalize themselves as persons of rank, standes personen." If this sounds difficult, it is. It's very, very difficult in reading it, so it's the kind of thing you have to one has to reread. In short. The experience of a shattering turnover of all values and realities, drives those whom it affects to transform their self-understanding from that of individual persons to that of members of a class, and hence to what I would call uh, dependent variables. In this sense, the second category of Herdlin's triad emerges out of this initial experience of being both shattered and of belonging to a larger group, a collective, a stand or an estate. Hertling calls the second characteristic, then uh, after Herkunft, provenance, a grouping. But here again, the grouping can be likened, although not identified, to what Kittler's addresses uh, seem to signify insofar as they designate the way in which individual elements, or if you wish, data, are localized, namely in interdependent but discrete relation to one another. Hurdling describes this relation of dependent variables as agonistic, and more particularly with respect to Antigone, as a contest of runners, in which I quote, the one who first gasps for breath, and collides with the opponent has lost. This is his way of describing the agonistic pattern of Antigone. Hölderlin, it should be noted, does not tell us how such a race is won, but only how it is lost. As if in this kind of tragic race, at least, there are no winners, only losers, which of course is a pretty good description of Antigone. This losing race, where it is not permitted to touch the opponent, or to breathe heavily, could be likened to the processing of discrete data that has been collected through its hergang. But to see how strained and excessive such likenesses are, and also how their discrepancies serve to bring out what is unlike in these two trinities, we need only proceed now to the third and final branch of Höldling's triad, namely what he calls the rational form, or the form of reason, the vernunft form, which, for Socrates in Antigone, he adds, is thoroughly political, and namely republican. Here, as with Hitler, it's necessary to keep in mind that against, that against which, and to which herdelin is here responding and reacting, namely the prevalent monarchical form of government that prevailed in most of Germany at the time. Republican as non-monarchical, requires a certain plurality or diversity in governance. In the play, Antigone, this takes the form of the conflict between Creon and Antigone, which Herdlin also describes chiastically as that between the formal Creon and the anti-formal Antigone. But now comes a decisive phrase which I'll translate as literally as possible and hence very awkwardly. Herdlin writes, the equilibrium das Gleichgewicht, which I recall, I don't have time to explain this here, that is the aim of the famous caesura, the famous interruption. It's to establish equilibrium, Gleichgewicht, for her The equilibrium is now literally, is held to like, T-O-O, to like. In German, zu gleich gehalten ist. Normally, the two words, used by Hördelin here are written together in one word, namely, zugleich, which when written as one word, which is how it's usually used, signifies at once or at the same time. However, by introducing a space, a gap between the two words, zu, between zu and gleich, Hördelin lets them say, process, transmit a supplementary meaning, which although less common, is also more literal. The republican form of reason, a political reason, is indicated at the end of the tragedy by, so, uh, the, tragedy by the fact, Höldlin writes, that at the end, Creon is practically mistreated by his servants. In other words, by the fact that his social and political form is degraded just as Adam Antigone has been through his punishment of her. In this separation of the mortal living being, whether Antigone or Creon, from their formalized social rank, the balance or equilibrium, das gleichgewicht, literally uh, like or equal weight, is upheld, but precisely through a certain excess. By becoming too like, too alike in their destinies, the two figures maintain a balance between singularity and generality, between mortality and endurance that consists more in an excess of likeness than in a simple equation. This then, I would submit, is perhaps that living sense, lebendigen Sinn, that Herdlin demands from tragic presentation and that presupposes the laws of its calculus through which a certain equilibrium is imposed by the caesura on what could be called the death drive of what Herdlin calls the tragic transport, but only only then in order to set off what remains incalculable, unberechenbar, since it is inseparable from the singular dimension of the living, which is to say from their mortality. This singular dimension cannot be equated with an epistemic object because, like the uproar and overturning that is its medium, It can only be felt as an erschütterung, as a trauma, traumatic shaking up, but not cognitized. It can only be experienced as an overwhelming shock, but never entirely calculated or recognized. It is this self-limitation of a certain cognitive experience and authority in the name of the incalculable and of a certain feeling that, I want to argue, fascinates, fascinated Friedrich Kittler, who also reacts to it through his effort to replace the dominion of a supreme being with the reign of computers, numbers, and of a recursivity that defies and exceeds all sense. A medium is a medium is a medium, he wrote famously in his magnum opus Discourse Networks. I would like to suggest that this insistence on the untranslatability of the medium in relation to other media upon which each nevertheless depends, calls for another equally gnomic statement in order to be made fully operable, this time from Jacques Derrida. That statement is truly untranslatable, so I'll quote it first in French and then try to paraphrase it in English. It's short, tout autre tout autre. That is, every other is entirely other. Media theory and analysis after Kittler may thus also include a rereading of texts that ostensibly belong to a period that is long since passed, but it may also be one that turns out to coexist at once, zugleich, with the extension of calculability that is one of the hallmarks of the digital age. It coexists with it by raising the question of whether the zugleich may not at the same time be zugleich, too alike and therefore singularly unlike. Perhaps, This is one of the subtexts or questions haunting the rosy dream of parallel computing, which Kittler acknowledges ironically, but perhaps did not entirely share. Thank you.